Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, historian and broadcaster Anita Anand talks about her book, The Patient Assassin, the story of Amritsar, one of the Raj's most horrific events, and the Irish connection to the massacre. The moderator is historian Dr Kate O'Malley, and the episode was recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 20th of October 2019. Hello everyone, thank you all for coming this Sunday afternoon. I have the great pleasure of introducing you all to Anita Anand, who is joining us here today. Broadcaster, journalist, writer and historian. Her previous publications include Sophia, Princess Suffragette and Revolutionary, and with William Dalrymple, Koei Noor, The History of the World's Most Infamous Diamond. But today she will be talking to us about her most recent book, which as you can see I have read thoroughly and have post-its littered through to show you how much I enjoyed it, The Patient Assassin, uh, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge and the Raj. And um, like me, I'm sure you're all really looking forward to hearing her speak. So we'll have Anita speak first and then questions and a chat afterwards. Thank you, Anita. Oh, Kate, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I hope you don't mind if I stand up because um, I spend most of my life sitting in a studio on my bottom and so I get very restless and I, I tend to sort of pace a bit. Uh, but, but I wanted to share with you um, some of the things behind the book and there are some wonderful pictures which I think also tell the story rather well. So first of all, I really should just confess, this is a book that I intended to write many, many years ago and that I found very difficult to write. Um, so I kept putting it away and putting it away and putting it away. And even now, when I have done it, I, I have to say it was one of the most eviscerating experiences of my life. Partly because the subject matter is, is very, very ugly. Partly because it overlaps with my life. And it overlapped bizarrely with my husband's life. And so it suddenly became a very personal thing. It suddenly became something that I wanted to write for my children, for my boys, to say, you know what, this is our history, and our history is very, very complicated. It revolves, The Patient Assassin, around three different personalities. Uh, This man is the assassin. His name is Udham Singh. He was an Indian, a Punjabi. He was born in 1899, and he was born with nothing. And when I say with nothing, I mean this is worse than poverty because in India there are two types of poverty. There's financial poverty and then there's poverty of status and caste. So Udham Singh was born, first of all, to two very, very poor parents and he was one of the lowest castes that existed in India. His parents died before he was even six years old. So this is a a young man who grows up with this enormous darkness in his life. And you could say that actually it is the city of Amritsar that parents him and brings him up. Because he's such, from such a poor family, after his parents both die, it's a family member who can't afford to put food on his own table, let alone take on these two new mouths, Udham Singh and his older brother, who takes him to an orphanage in, in Amritsar, the second city of India, and begs the holy men there, to take these boys in and look after them. So Amritsar was the parent for Udham Singh, which may explain why he goes to the lengths that he does when Amritsar is, and Amritsaris are violated in the way that they are. The other person in this story, in this triangle, uh, a rather miserable triangle, is a man called Rex Dyer. Reginald Dyer, Rex to his friends. Um, 
He was Indian to the core in many ways, third generation born in India, and was a man who would have proclaimed that he loved India. He spoke the languages. He had a, a great affinity with the troops who served under him, who were by and large Indians. Uh, he was the kind of man who thought later and acted first. That's what people said about Rex Dyer, that he was never more comfortable than when he was charging over a stockade with a, with a pistol hanging out of his teeth. And then, oh, I should say, the Irish connections here are strong because Rex Dyer uh, went to college, although he was born and brought up in India, uh, like many of his class and caste, if I can put it that way, children were sent back home to a land they really didn't understand or know, uh, to go and be educated. And he was sent to Middleton College in County Cork, not a, not a, a, a long way away from here. And I can tell you, uh, he hated every second of it. <laughs> Absolutely loathed it. And the reason he loathed it, it was because, I mean, it's just such a, such a strange irony that these life experiences of these men didn't teach them to be other than they turned out to be. So when he was at Middleton College, he was teased mercilessly for being the Indian and for having a funny accent and so badly bullied that he developed a terrible stammer when he was there. So he hated it. He hated life there. And the only time he actually became himself and grew into his own skin was when he put on khaki and he became a military man. And then there's this man here, Michael O'Dwyer, Sir Michael, a boy from Tipperary, an Irish Catholic, born uh, at a time when his neighbours were trying to get over the aftermath of the, of the Irish famine, born to a family that was unique in Tipperary. John O'Dwyer, his father, wasn't just the, the man he, he loved as a father. He was the best man that Michael would ever know. That's how he would describe him. The best man who ever existed. And John O'Dwyer was a little bit different to the other people who lived in Tipperary because he had some money. He had a bit of land, not too much land. He had some horses, not too many horses. He had a few cows. But, you know, compared to the, the, the people who were around him who were penniless and on their knees, they did all right. You know, all of the children were educated and sent to school. And Michael worshipped John. And John, unlike the other Irish Catholics who lived around the family, hated nationalism, hated the nationalists, hated the Fenians, didn't trust them. He used to refer to them as, as hotheads and thugs. And that was kind of the teat that Michael O'Dwyer was, was reared on that they are chaos. Westminster's might is right. You have to be loyal to king and country, which made the O'Dwyer family slightly weird in Tipperary at that time. He goes off, he's, he goes off and he's, he, he goes to school. He's raised by Jesuits. He then excels and his dream is to go and work for the ICS, the Indian Civil Service, which is an extraordinary uh, uh, organization, never numbering more than 1,200. These are men who go to govern India on behalf of the Raj. Um, and they are educated in a way that would have felt completely natural to Michael O'Dwyer, because he's been brought up on this notion that nationalists are bad and hotheads and lunatics. And at the ICS, they teach all of their cadets, that you know what? Nationalism is insanity. The native nationalism 
is violent. These people are savages, and they always go back to the example of 1857 and the mutiny, and that is a time when everything changes between the relationship between India and Great Britain. Up to 1857, you have the East India Company that are in India, and they're doing deals with local potentates. You know, they see that there is money to be made. They go and they, you know, they, they treat with them. They, they exchange with them. They make deals with them. They pay them for things. After 1857 and the violence that occurs, which targets women and children in Kanpur very famously, there is a total shift in that paradigm. So now these are not people that you deal with. These are not people who are equals. These are savages. You turn your back on them, they'll slit your throat. And that is what Michael O'Dwyer is learning when he's learning at the ICS. And during that time, the worst thing in the world happens to him. John, his father, who is at home, who has been standing alone like this sort of pillar of, of difference in Tipperary, is attacked by the Fenians he has spent his whole life criticizing and slamming. They fire into the family house. They narrowly miss his father and, they, and his sister, who are at home at the time. Michael is away, frantic, trying to get back home. And his father has a stroke from the stress. So Michael O'Dwyer will always have this causality that these people, these nationalists, hurt his father, the best man in the world. And when he comes home at Christmas to be with his ailing father, he has another terrible stroke which kills him. So pretty much he dies in his boy's arms. And so this now is the foundation upon which the rest of his life in India will be built. When Michael O'Dwyer does go to India uh, for the first time after graduating from Balliol College and doing very, very well, the, the boy is, is smart as a whip. And despite the kind of anti-Catholic racism that he had to deal with at college, he excels. He just kind of trips over it and as if it's, it's not an impediment at all. And he's now on the fast track in India. And he loves India. Well, he actually, he loves a certain part of India. He loves the pith helmet India. He loves the, you know, the, the, the tiger hunts and the pig sticking and the polo and the, the sundowners. And he loves it when the Indians know their place. He loves that sort of service and the ease of life that exists in India. The Indians, not so much. <laughs> not so much, not so keen on them. In fact, he does this really, he does this uh, extraordinary thing where he, um, he, he's like a botanist detailing poisonous species when he talks about the Indians of India. You know, he, he goes, he, he has a, uh, it's, it's an autobiography to all intents and purposes called India as I Knew It. And in it, you know, you go through the pages and he will describe groups and religions and ethnicities and he will classify them. So, for example, uh, in Punjab, where he spends a great deal of his career, the Sikhs, well, they are, they are martial, they are virile and quite stupid. Uh, you have, you know, the Bengalis, uh, not as clever as they think. They are quite effeminate. Uh, you know, and he goes on the Beals. Well, they like a drink and a dance and they fall over a lot. You know, so he does this classification uh, of Indians. And he has this inbuilt belief that any misfortune that happens to Indians is of their own doing. It has nothing to do with the ICS. It is because of failings in the nature, the very nature of, of being a native. This, by the way, and I'm sorry if this is upsetting, but I, I want you to see it, because it was a postcard that people sent to each other from India. The results of a famine that now many Indian historians will lay entirely at the feet of the British Raj. 
There was one type of Indian uh, more than other, any other type that, that Sir Michael O'Dwyer despised with a passion. Um, hands up if you recognize who this is. Don't shout it up, but hands up. Okay, so a, a, a very few of you. His name is Gandhi. And this is what uh, Gandhi looked like when he first came back to India, called back by the nationalists because he'd been so successful in South Africa fighting the pass laws in South Africa. And he had done so in a non-violent way. So the nationalists in India, who just as in Ireland, you know, they are, they, are, they are chafing under high taxation, tight controls, and they want some say. At the time when Gandhi comes over, they're not asking for freedom. They're not asking for the British to leave. They're just saying, can we have some say in how, what happens to us? And Gandhi is the worst of the worst as far as Michael O'Dwyer is concerned. He is the pits, he's poisonous, he is the educated Indian. And he hates him because this is nationalism, the snake in the grass, the man who will slit your throat. He talks of peace, but he'll kill you as soon as look at you. And that is the way in which Michael O'Dwyer goes into his greatest job in India. He becomes Lieutenant Governor of, of Punjab, which is the highest, short of being the Governor General, Viceroy of India, uh, each province has, has a Lieutenant Governor who looks after the province. And in 1912, when um, there is the Delhi Darbar, again in itself, a, a great visual example of colonialism, really for the benefit of the natives where the king emperor and his wife stand on a, on a great dais in the middle of a, of a field that is flattened and is almost as big as old Delhi itself. Nawabs and maharajas and rajas are, are called forward and they're told, you bow in front of the king emperor just so that everybody is clear who holds the whip hand in India. And it's at this ceremony that Michael O'Dwyer is pulled to one side by the governor general who says, you know what, I'm giving you Punjab, but just beware, Gandhi's stuff is spreading in Punjab and it's bubbling away. There is discontent in Punjab. You're going to have to really come down on this with an iron fist. And Michael O'Dwight, yes, sir, I am the man for the job. And that is the mental mindset that he goes in to governing Punjab. He loves his life as lieutenant governor. It suits him down to the ground. I don't have a, a pointer on this, but I was so thrilled to find this picture in an archive. Um, so this is, if you can see the little man's head sort of peeking out behind the little girl with the pith helmet, that is Michael O'Dwyer, as pleased as punch, um, because he's got a pet leopard, uh, which is, you know, of course, every, every lieutenant governor needs one. And in front of him is his daughter, Una, who he loves without any limit. He's not so keen on his own son, Jack, but he loves his daughter. And next to, next to Una is his wife, Eunice. And so he has this wonderful idyllic life in India. Everything is fine until it's not fine. And when there's even a little wrinkle, what others may have seen as a challenge of being a lieutenant governor, Michael always sees as some kind of precursor to a mutiny. He is the jumpiest lieutenant governor that has ever taken that position. And he comes down with not just an iron fist, but an iron fist, an iron boot, a mace. He crushes everything. So there is one example that I give in the book. When he comes into power, there are, um, uh, there's a handful of people who are on trial for an attempt on uh, the governor of India's life. Uh, Henry Harding is in a, in a, in a, he's on an elephant. Somebody lobs a bomb in. 
he escapes, this mahout is killed, but he's fine. And one of the people who's on trial is a teenage boy who is meant to have a very low IQ. And the courts, the British-appointed courts, decide that he is not mentally compassmentous enough to be tried as an adult, so they send him off for transportation to, you know, have a, 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 a breaking rocks sentence. Michael says, no, no, no. He comes in. The first thing that he does is he says, you bring that boy back and you hang him. And he does. So that is, that is the kind of tone that he sets. And then war is on the horizon. This is Michael's greatest test. 1914, he promises his masters in London, he says, I will give you the greatest number of troops from India. So the greatest volunteer force that ever fights and he will take the lion's share of that responsibility. He always describes Punjab as a sword hand of India, so he will make the quotas. That he promises them. And he does, you know, he does it and more with a mixture of promises and threats and also weaponizing differences between people who have lived together quite happily for a very long time. So first of all, he says to those who are going to sign up or thinking about signing up, you will come back to great riches and lands. We will give you rewards for going and fighting valiantly. And if you die in battle, your families will be taken care of. Then, when that's not bringing the flow in uh, quite as quickly enough, he starts travelling around the whole of his province, uh, saying to the people, for example, in Lahore, do you call yourself men? Amritsar's given twice as many as you. Are you eunuchs? You know, he uses the vernacular and the language that is absolutely designed to wound the psyche of the people that he's taunting into the arms of the recruiting officers. To Muslims, he'll say, you're no good. You're not as good as the Hindus. To Hindus, he'll say, what, really? Your, your gods will smile at you, will they, if you're going to send this many men? And when that doesn't produce it, there is talk of press gangs coming in and emptying out villages at night. I mean, there was a story I came across of, of a village where just there was a rumour that they were going to come, the recruiting officers and all the men under 40 disappeared overnight. But, you know, these men go. And the majority of them sign up willingly. And they go and they fight in this foreign war, a language they don't understand, a cause they don't get for... For what? Well, they think for gratitude, a lot of them, or for reward. And one of the people who's telling them that most of all, and this is one of the startling things, I, I learned so many startling things writing this book, was Gandhi, was the chief recruiting officer. So Gandhi, who comes back to India, really, truly believes in his heart that if we show the British how we stand with them, if we stand side by side with them and fight for them and bleed for them, they will release the grip. And so he travels around the country despite everyone saying, who, what are, who are you? I thought you were non-violent. What are you doing? He says, no, I'll even put on a uniform and I'll pick up a gun if I have to, because this is how we improve the lot of Indians. And what happens when they come back? It gets worse. There are no riches. There is no land. I mean, there are some people who are rewarded, but not in the way in which they were expected. And instead, taxes are high because they have to replenish the coffers that have been emptied to fight this war. And, you know, worse than that, there are laws which are enacted during wartime, the Defence of the Realm uh, regulations and laws, which are extended. So people like Michael O'Dwyer argue that they need to have more power in peacetime because now these men have fought. They've picked up guns. They have a taste for it. So we need the Rowlett Acts. 
And the Rowell Acts were the most illiberal piece of legislation that India had ever seen. They actually roused Gandhi out of this sort of slight dreamlike state that he'd been in throughout the war to say, you know, I don't trust these people anymore. We cannot work with them anymore. It, it suspended habeas corpus. People could be picked up for uh, and, and imprisoned for, 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 with no trial. Nobody would know, no process. If you were in even slightly critical of the Raj, you could be done for sedition. It was absolutely draconian legislation. And you know what happens as a result of draconian legislation to a people who are tired and grieving for their boys, who some of them are still buried in foreign lands, and you will never be able to cremate them. You will never be able to say prayers over their bodies. What happens? They get pissed off. And that is what happened in Punjab. They started to get really pissed off. They were paying taxes they couldn't afford. And, you know, there is trouble brewing. In Amritsar, there are two men kind of keeping a lid on the situation. And they <laughs> at once become a help to the British administration, but Sir Michael's worst nightmare. They are two men called Satyapal and Kichlu. Uh, and oh, so these are sorry these are the pictures of some of the pens where people were rounded up in this many numbers thanks to Rowlett and just kept like animals so you know that that anger and the resentment it's put into a pressure cooker this is what this is what sir michael thinks is going to sort sort the problem out um in amrit so these two men satyapal and kichlu are a hindu and a muslim who believe in the gandhian principle of non-violence They are Gandhians to their bone marrow, and they are keeping a lid on the resentment. However, this Hindu-Muslim unity is really freaking the British out. Because you know what? Once they get together, they're going to mutiny, and it's going to be worse. It's always this narrative of they're going to mutiny, they're going to kill our children, they're going to kill our women. This is what's going to happen. And so what happens is Sir Michael says, you know what? To his administrator in Amrit, so he says, arrest them. Arrest them and take them away. These two men who are the valve on all that anger that is building up after the war. And that is what happens. These two men, Satyapal and Kichlu, are taken and they're spirited out of the city. We're talk this is, by the way, April 1919 that we're talking about. And they're taken away. And this cap that has been put on, on, on the anger, it just blows. Because people go and they, first of all, they go in peace and they say, look, what's happened to Satyapal and Kichlu? Can you tell us what's happened? And volleys of bullets are fired into unarmed civilians. And so then it erupts in violence. Amritsar erupts in violence after this arrest of these two men and deportation of these two men. So, you know, what would you do in that situation? You might want to say, oh, did, have I been doing the right thing or not? So Michael doubles down. He sends Rex Dyer to go and take control of the situation. You know, the man who rolls up his sleeve and will charge into a situation with a gun hanging out of his teeth. And he goes, Rex, we'll sort this out. So Rex Dyer is dispatched to Amritsar, a city he doesn't know. The moment he arrives, he issues drum proclamations around the city saying there will be no gatherings of more than 12 people. Uh, there will be no political meetings. There will be no sloganeering, no pamphleteering, any, any of these things. You will be arrested immediately. We are invoking the very worst of the Rowlett Act. It's not martial law, but in effect, it's martial law because, you know, the government has been handed over to a brigadier general in the army.
He gets wind that on the 13th of April, two days after he's arrived in this strange city and made these strange proclamations. By the way, if you don't know Amritsar, it is the noisiest place I've ever been to on planet Earth. I am, I am ethnically a Punjabi. We laugh at Amritsaris. We actually call them our crows because they don't talk to each other. They squawk at each other. <laughs> okay? I mean, I, I've got family who are from Amritsar, and I'm telling you this is God's honest truth. There is no such thing as sotto voce in Amritsar. Okay? And, it's a, and it's a medieval place, a very sort of narrow windy, twisty streets. So a drum, the thought that a drum proclamation could cover an entire city is insane. Also, April the 13th, when Rex Dyer decides to make his stand, is the busiest day in the year. It is Vesakhi, it is the harvest festival in India. And the north, Punjab being the breadbasket of India, people pour into the city. They pour to, in to give thanks at the Golden Temple for the harvest, to do deals with each other. There's a major cattle fair on on Vesakhi. A horse fair is on during Vesakhi. People in the villages, you know, this is not social media time. You don't get a tweet telling you that Rex Dyer doesn't want people coming in. So people are pouring into the city. And there is a place, a square, which is some five minutes away from the Golden Temple called Jallianwalabagh, the Garden of, of, of Jalla. And, you know, to call it a garden is pretty prosaic because it's just a, it's a flat, dusty piece of ground. There's just, there was nothing in it. This is the entrance, and it actually remains the entrance. Uh, these photos taken in 1919. Three men, shoulder to shoulder, would find it really hard to get through this gate. And there are tenement buildings all the way around. It's the size of about pff, three and a half football pitches, maybe four football pitches together. Flat, dusty. There are two or three trees, you know, and most of them are these spindly little things, but actually there's one thick trunked people tree, it's an indigenous tree to India. And on Vesaki Day, on this hot, hot afternoon, April the 13th, 1919, it is filled with people. 20,000 men, women and children are in this place on this day. There is a political meeting and some of them are there to hear this political meeting, which incidentally is held by followers of Satyapal and Kichalu, the two Gandhian leaders who've gone missing, to say, what are we going to do next? What is our response meant to be? But the majority of people are not there for politics. They are there to get the hell out of the mayhem that is Amritsar on Vesaki Day. They're having picnics. They're meeting up. They're chatting. You know, they're, they're doing what Amritsaris do. They're eating. They're laughing. You know, they're just living in their city in their garden. Rex Dyer drives his vehicle and 50 armed soldiers, 50 riflemen, and finds this, this narrow entrance. And he's really angry about it because he can't get his vehicle through. Thank God he couldn't because it's machine gun mounted. And he would have used it, the machine gun, had he got that vehicle through. Instead, he marches his 50 Balochi and Gurkha riflemen and he tells them to take a position on this north bank, slightly raised, 20,000 men, women and children unarmed. They panic. They see them come in and they start gathering up their things. They, well, okay, we'll have to go. We'll have to leave very quickly. There is not one single order to disperse. He orders them to fire. And fire. And fire. And fire. 10 minutes. And fire. 1,650 bullets. And fire. And fire. Not just fire but swivel and turn and fire to the thickest parts of the crowd. And they happen to be at the walls where people are desperately trying to get out, out and over. So there are bodies building up like pyramids by the perimeter wall. 
there's a well, a squat little well in the middle of this dusty ground and people are throwing loved ones in to get away from the bullets. That tree I told you about, splinters and blood and flesh. There's all these people, just futile, trying to hide from these bullets and they're flying, they're flying, the bullets are flying. I know something about this, and I said, you know, this was a hard book to write, um, and that's because my grandfather was in the garden on the day of the massacre. This is my grandfather, Lala Ishwardas Anand. I never knew him. He died before I was born. He died young, and was always a very tragic figure when I talked to my father and, and his brothers about him. He was in the garden having a picnic with his friends. He wasn't from Amritsar, he was from out of town and he'd come to do a sewing machine deal. I mean, I'd love to say he was some kind of political giant or revolutionary, he was there for the meeting. He wasn't, he was, he was a teenager, gangly, on his first job to make his dad proud. And he was gonna buy some secondhand parts for sewing machines to fix in the mountains and sell on. That's what he was gonna do. And he, he left his friends and he said, look, save some food for me, I'll be back. I've just gotta go and do, do something in the market. And he remembered passing a column of, of men on their way. And he, he presumed this is what happens in Amrit. So he's not from around here. There are always armed columns in the city. What does he know? And he carries on to the marketplace. And the first that he knows that something has happened is this wailing is sweeping over the whole market, which is where he is. He races back to his, try and get to his friends to see if they're okay. And he's screamed off the streets by an armed man. And he goes and he hides and this is what he never got over. He lived with survivor's guilt for the rest of his life. He couldn't bear the fact that he waited till morning to find out that his friends were dead. So he went blind quite early in life, my grandfather, and whenever anybody tried to sympathize with him, uh, he would say, don't you dare pity me. Uh, God gave me my life that day. It's only right he take the light from my eyes. There were other people who were in the garden and did not get out. And we have harrowing accounts. I mean, of the massacre itself, from British officers who were with Rex Dyer, and from a subsequent inquiry, the Hunter inquiry that took place. And we have Indian reports, which you know haven't really been looked at in great detail before, but I certainly made it my, my job to look at what they had said. And they talk about being trapped in this garden and the noises of the wailing getting quieter and quieter and quieter until the morning. And there's a legend in India that one of the people who's trapped in the garden is Udham Singh, the patient assassin. He looks very different in this picture than he did in the one I showed you first. He's the tall man right at the back. And as legend has it, he's in the garden. He's been winged by a bullet. And he's there listening to the silence by morning. And in the morning, as the first light hits the ground, he picks up a clod of blood-soaked earth and he rubs it against his head. And he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I am going to kill the men who did this with as little mercy as they have shown my people. The patient assassin, and I, I, I was sort of aware, we, we were chatting, I don't know, I could go bang on about this for a very long time, is about him and his revenge. And remember, this is a man who has nothing, no agency, nothing at all, the, you know, the lowest of the low. And he spends 21 years of his life becoming the man who can do what he said he would do. So like some real life Tom Ripley, he goes around living by the adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Whoever hates these people as much as I hate these people, I am going to learn from them until I can do what I've promised to do. 
And he has plenty to stoke his anger. Because the massacre, although everyone's talking about the massacre, or they were talking about the massacre this year, it's the centenary of the massacre this year. The things that happened afterwards were almost as bad. So um, in the run-up to that arrest, after the arrest of Satyapal and Kichlu, when there was this great outpouring of violence in Amritsar before Rex Dyer arrives to sort them all out and teach them a lesson, um, the, there, is, there is a great deal of violence which, without Satyapal and Kichlu, just washes over the city like a flash of rage and violence. In it, uh, a, a woman called Marcella Sherwood, who is a missionary, is hauled off her bicycle and beaten almost to death by a mob. It's because they think she's somebody else. When the pleaders have gone to ask where Satyapal and Kichlu are and the soldiers open fire, they carry the wounded to a hospital and apparently a woman called Miss Easton, a doctor, says, I'm not treating any of you rebels, you can go away and die, and laughs. And so this mob is then after this white woman to go and find her and they find poor Marcella Sherwood who's done nothing wrong at all and they beat her almost to death, or they think they've killed her. It is, I mean, the fact that it's Indians who save her, you know, the mob goes, they take her in, they bandage her up, and they hide her. So when the mob comes back, they say, no, 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 she's gone over there. That's kind of forgotten in the aftermath of the massacre. The lane where Marcella Sherwood has been killed, I mean, you think again, you know, just pause for a second. You have just committed an atrocious atrocity against men, women, and children. Just pause. They don't pause. They double down again. Michael and Rex double down again. So Rex Dyer seals off this lane where Marcella Sherwood was, was attacked and he issues the crawling order where anybody who has to traverse this street or even lives on this street has to go through it on their bellies like a worm and rifle butts and boots are put into their backs. These are souvenir pictures that they took of themselves doing this. Does this remind anyone of Guantanamo Bay at all? And Sir Michael's big idea. First of all, you know, he sends a message to Rex Dyer. The lieutenant governor approves your action. And then he says, why don't you put up some scaffolding and some gallows in public places? That'll teach him, that'll scare him. And then flogging triangles are erected around Amritsar and then other places where men who are even suspected of doing crime. No, no due process, no trial, no evidence. They're just tied to these things and flogged in front of their neighbours until they are unconscious. Um, and then there are the warplanes. So Michael, when he realises the rage from Amritsar is spilling over into the rest of his province, sends the RAF out. He's already planned this contingency for the, the mutiny that he always knows is going to happen. The mutiny that, you know, he is bringing about every time, step by step by his actions. And he orders this, I mean, the, the evidence of this man, Carberry, which is in the book, will, will just make such horrifying reading because these are not people to him. He's asked at a subsequent inquiry, you know, you opened fire with a warplane on civilians on a street, on a, on a, on a road going into the city. Why? Well, they're rebels. How do you know? Could you see them? What height were you? He says the height. Well, how do you know? Oh, I just knew. If they were on the road, they had to be rebels. And they fire. Not just at the people on the, on the road, but when they disperse and they try and run into their villages, he fires through the roofs of their houses. God, who, how, what does he know? They're sleeping babies in those houses. Who could be in those houses? It doesn't matter. They're all rebels. And that is the thing that fuels this man, Udham Singh, to become the man who will settle the score. And I will stop talking there because I'll go on and on and on. And you can ask me questions and I'm happy to answer anything. Thank you very much. <laughs>
I said, I said to Kate, you've got to get one of those sticks with the, the, the candy cane thing to pull me off because I was like, just go on and on. Well, somebody might have to do the same yeah. to me. <laughs> if you can, my post-its or anything to go by. Thank you, Anita. Um, I'm going to kick it off by asking you about writing about a martyr because um, for those of you in the audience who may not have read the book yet, and there's plenty of opportunity to get it afterwards and have it signed indeed. I mean, Udam Singh is in the truest sense of the word or has been turned into uh, in Indian society and history uh, in, into a martyr. And that's something we're all very familiar with here, no? And so I was fascinated by your retelling of the story of a martyr. Were there responsibilities attached to it? Were there anxieties attached to it? Were there family pressures by virtue of um, Ishwar Das, who we know? And then, and, and then just to end that question, that you know, how much did you or didn't you like any of the protagonists in, in researching the book? So, so I said at the beginning that this is a really hard book to write, and that's because two of the names involved have been the names of you know boogeymen of my childhood. I grew up with this story. It's my family mm. history. And the names Dyer and O'Dwyer, which in India, by the way, are melded really Here quite too. frequently. Here they too. become they yeah. become Michael Dyer or Reginald O'Dwyer. There's this kind of composite demon that's created in, in the Indian psyche of of the man who did this. Although you know this is this is a a, a dual enterprise, if you like. Uh, so to write this, I mean, I, I'm because I'm a journalist, and, and if any of you know what I do, um, I I try and understand why people have certain political views. That's what I try. I, I, I in in a in a civilized space. Why do you think that? And I had to do that for these people who I viscerally hated because of this story. And you know what? The only way I could do it was um, to rename them. So uh, I had to take the Dyer and O'Dwyer out, and he had to be Michael, and he had to be Rex. And I had to go back to the beginning of who they were. Do you know, the boys, their lives, why were they like this to even get under the skin of who they were? And the same with Udham Singh. You know, he was, he was a really complicated man. Very flawed, as you... Very, very flawed. Yeah, and, you know, I, I should say the other uh, overlap, we only found out um, a few years into my marriage, I'm, I'm married to a, a writer called Simon Singh, and I, I think there was something I was saying to him once about my grandfather. And he said, uh, he said, I didn't know that. You know, like when you're married for a long time, you think you've told each other all your stories and you clearly haven't. And I was telling him about my granddad. And he said, that's so weird because my great uncle lived with Udham Singh, the assassin. I was like, oh my God, this is now our joint history. So the, the responsibility of telling the story of a martyr, I'm not interested in that. I, I wasn't, I'm not there. There have been so many hagiographies about Udham mm. Singh in India. They've turned him into Bollywood films, music, He's been on stamps. There are streets named after him. And it is as lazy thinking as, as me making, you know, Michael Dyer or Reginald O'Dwyer. It's not real. So I just went about it like a journalist, which is who are you? What happened to you? What did you do? And could you have done anything different? And did I like him? You know, I've gone on a bit of a journey. <laughs> journey. Um, you know, I, I understand... Um, what happened? I understand why he was driven, but you know the truth is there are certain there are, there are difference, differences in people. Some are capable of killing, and others are not capable of killing. Mm. And there were times when he could have stopped and turned back, or he could have had a happy life, 
or he could have been a good husband and a good father, you know, because he does. He travels around the world. He lives some time in America. I mean, he was uh, he was earning good money. He there. was earning good Very money. Settled. He was living the yeah. American dream. Anyone who was in sort of Sarah Churchill's um, a, a, amazing talk, he was living, you know, that that sort of uh, uh, that first definition of what the American dream was. Mm. He had money. He had status. He had a woman who loved him. He married a, a Mexican woman called Lupe, and they had children. And he rather callously dumps them to go and pursue this, this vendetta, this, this, this vendetta. So whereas, you know, that I can, there, is a, there is maybe a, a settling of a score which balances history, I'm uncomfortable with somebody who can treat people that love them like that. Mm. So do I like him? I'm not sure I do, but I really, I, I respect the... the I respect the feeling of duty that he felt. Okay. That he, that he had to, he had to do something. Yeah. Um, but I don't think all of us would have done it, and I, I don't think I'd be capable of, of doing it. I don't think I'd be capable of taking a life. I quite liked that he was an atheist, Martha. That's not something we're familiar with in well, this he, country. He, he was or an atheist. Indeed, he was yeah. absolutely an atheist. I mean, Martha. that's, yeah, was, that's quite unusual. Be, so yeah. by, by giving him kind of a personality and telling us about his flaws and his life. In, in the, those years between Amritsar, whether he was or wasn't there, much like the GPO, all of Dublin were in the GPO in 1916, were they not? Um, was Odham Singh there or not? Does it matter even whether people can prove that he was or wasn't? Is that yeah, crucial I, to the telling so, of the so story? I mean, I, I, again, I, I just think honesty is the best policy mm. because, you know, that again, in the, in the, there are various uh, uh, books in India that have been written which have him you know, wrestling Rex Dyer to the ground or, yeah. um, you know, sort of uh, uh, catching bullets in his teeth or, you know, all sorts of these things. And actually, I, uh, what I say is I don't know if he was there. There is no definitive proof that he was there. But the British who eventually, after he does settle his score, are trying desperately to separate him from the assassination and the assassination from the massacre... Because they, you know, this is again the time when, I, I mean, I, I haven't said this, but Rex Dyer dies of natural causes before he can get to Dyer. And Dyer dies a broken, broken man, spiritually and physically. He comes back to England. He's disgraced after the massacre. He's traduced in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. The British public love him. They raise an enormous amount of money for him. They treat him as a hero, the saviour of the Raj. They raised £26,000 for him, which was a, a fortune in those days. But he retires from public life, and he's tortured by it. Uh, there's an account from his, his own um, daughter-in-law on the night that he died. There's a terrible electrical storm. And she comes in, the lights go out, and she goes, don't worry, you know, this will pass. And he goes, I don't want this to pass, thinking that she's talking about his condition, which is deteriorating. He says, uh, some say that I did right, some say that I did wrong. I just want to meet, meet my maker and find out. Michael, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, never loses, in his own words, a night's sleep over this, mm. ever. In fact, he comes back to England, and everybody who's taken part in this debate and criticised him is wrong. <laughs> in his mind, they are unpatriotic. And he makes his living going around the speaker circuit and saying what he did was right. And you know what? They fill the halls, much like you are sitting here now. And they bang their shoes on the ground and they say, well done, you. So that is, uh, that is the difference. I can't remember where the question started, but that's where I've taken you. Sorry about that. No, and you've, you've that, taken yeah. us to um, 
to the, the loyalist elephant in the room, I think, which is something that I found interesting reading the book. As somebody who spent a lot of time researching the connections between Irish and Indian nationalism in the later period, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to, to read about those years when O'Dwyer came back to London and was on the lecture circuit, um, absolutely defending to the last. I mean, that was very difficult. You know, I mean, we all know that whether, and it's something we're only coming to terms with ourselves in the last few years, um, uh, you know, very well, I, I think, at least in relation to our involvement in the Second World War. But that uh, as Irish people, um, much like Indian people, we didn't just revolt against British uh, imperialism, we sustained it. And, and I, think that, I, I think that's really important for, for both uh, countries to, uh, you know, to realise and to come to terms well, with, especially yeah, in the midst yeah. of commemorations and, yeah. you know, invoking apologies and, and whatnot. I'm curious to know, because we have our own kind of issues with how some of this, you know, is, is commemorated over recent years, be it involvement in the First World War, Second World War, not so much our involvement in sustaining the Raj. I think that's a whole other piece that needs to be looked at. But in India, how, you know, are people viewed uh, and or treated if they were, you know, soldiers, for example? I think it's slightly different. I think it's more nuanced. So, so they're, 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 as far as um, the Irish and Indian connection, I'm, I'm fascinated by it as well. Um, I mean, I, I thought that... Um, Michael was an outlier, you know, being this kind of strange oh. creature in Tipperary where John really, really, really stuck out, you know, by being more loyal than the king in, in many ways. But, you know, the, the day that he... I, I mean, I'll, tell, I'll skip forward to, to the ending. I mean, you know, he gets his man, Udham Singh, in 1940 uh, at a meeting. And again, this is at the height of war. Imagine this. At the height of war, there's a meeting going on in Caxton Hall and there are so many symmetries and parallels in life. I mean, just this, you, you wouldn't write it in fiction because an editor would say, go away and make it more believable. But in this hall, which is almost the same distance away from the House of Commons as Jallianwala Bagh is away from the Golden Temple, there is a meeting of the great and the good of the Raj on the 13th of March, 1940. And Udham Singh has been waiting and waiting and waiting for his chance. And this is his chance. So there's this meeting, he doesn't have a ticket, he walks in and he waits for the speeches to end. And eyewitnesses, so there are boxes and boxes of eyewitness testimony that you find police records and things. And he walks very calmly to the front. So Michael must have thought he was reaching out to shake his hand. And he sees the gun too late because he just manages to turn and Udham fires twice with deadly accuracy at point-blank range, two parallel trajectories, and I've fired one of these guns. They have a, an extraordinary kick. So he managed to fire once straight through this man's heart. The kick, he comes down, and again, second time straight through his heart, two lines of vengeance through Michael O'Dwyer's heart. And Michael O'Dwyer lies dead in Westminster, well, he bleeds out just like so many of those people bled out in the garden. So the other thing, you know, he wasn't the only one. Otham also shoots some other people, and, and that's what the, the surprise thing was. Louis Dane was there. Louis Dane was another Irishman mm. who was another, uh, you know, lieutenant governor in India. And you go right down the almanacs and you see there were lots of Irish people who were involved and Irish Catholics who were involved. And you know what? I, I sort of got a bit obsessed with this. I know you love archives. Mm. I love archives. Love, love an archive. And so I, I came across a ballad that was written, um, it must have been in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know this uh, ballad, Poor Paddy Must Emigrate? 
It's oh, got this. Anybody? It's got this chorus. Okay, it was it was the best selling sheet music in Pennsylvania at the turn of the century, and it's this ballad. You know, it, it talks about the potato famine, not being able to feed your family, and not being able to pay the rent, and being you know costed out by greedy landlords. And poor Paddy must emigrate. And it goes on and on about the hardships of the, a, a, an Irishman who's forced to go to America and will never see his beloved. Uh, country again and there is this there is this verse I won't read it to you I could if you're interested but there's this verse in it saying you know what we killed Indians for you (laughs) during the mutiny we slaughtered those savages for you and now poor Paddy must emigrate you know so there there is this kind of disconnect completely between you know you are leaving because of this you know hardship that's been you know arguably brought upon you by by Westminster rule and you are crushing the people who are complaining mm. about the hardships brought on them by Westminster Rule. So, you know, there's that, but then there's also the other, you know, there are two, like the two bullets that go through Michael O'Dwyer's heart, there are two lines of travel with Irish and Indian nationalism because also, you know what, they loved de Valera. They loved Michael Collins. They saw this great mirror image of the struggle. Mm. When Michael Collins came to India in 19... Uh, when de Valera came to uh, America in 1919 in July, just months after the massacre, there were Sikhs waiting for him at, at, at They gave San him Francisco. a sword, actually. Gave him a kept, ceremonial yeah, sword. Yeah. Saying, you know, you're our brother. This yeah. is our fight. So, yes, it's... Uh, it's, it's all, yeah. Everything is always a bit more complicated than you exactly. think. Exactly. And yeah. he, he, when he was in America, he actually wrote a pamphlet that was um, distributed by the Friends of India in, in the US where he references Dyer throughout because yeah. yeah. it's a year later. Um, but there's no reference to Michael O'Dwyer. It's yeah. almost like he's, it's you know doesn't want to go there himself. Um, I, I'm fascinated as well. Um, we, we can talk about sources till cows come home, but I, I don't want to bore everybody. I'm more interested as well to find out about the interviews that you had to carry out, um, especially given that some of them were some of them weren't. She went to the, the town that Adam Singh was, was uh, brought up in. How difficult or not was it to get people to talk? It was very difficult to sift the um, truth from the bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Suddenly, everybody was the best friend of Udham Singh, and they, you know, yeah. lived with him. And you know, it was it was a really um, peculiar thing, where um, you know, my, my husband had said, "Oh, my great uncle lived with him," and I was like, "Yeah, another one. Yeah, of course he did." Um, but but you know what? The British have um, extraordinary census records, yes. so you can yeah. see the residences that somebody has lived with. And I found the I said, "Oh no, you know what?" Simon, you're right. He did. Okay, we can ask you where we can talk now. And and I, I had to just double and triple check everything. And when I went to Sunam, which is the hometown um, where Udham Singh was born and where you know his his parents were from, again everybody everybody knew him. But it was the quietest ones that you listened to. Yeah. The ones who say, "Well, I don't. I've got, I've got a story. I think you know he used to rent a room around the back." And you think. That is such a boring story. It must be true. So, you know, I'd go around and sort of, you know, a, a sort of halfway into a, a, a half day chit chat, you know, they'd say, oh, yes, you know, I think my grandfather kept a diary at that time. Do you want to see it? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'd really like to see it. And you would, and, and so, you know, you get, you, it's a journalistic historian feeling that you get. The, the least aggrandized stories are the ones worth following because you'll find something at the end of it. And I said so there were oral stories which you then had to double check. There were written accounts which were like gold. I mean, there was this one 
um, exercise book, which was just extraordinary, um, which was filled with recollections of Uthamsin coming back to Sanat. And again, they were, you know, they were fairly boring, you know, that he liked eating Ladoos and he'd lost a lot of weight after prison. And then you'd find this sort of chapter uh, in this little exercise book, which was water damaged, you know, because they just not really, you know, valued it um uh, and and you know there's this extraordinary thing about how he came out of prison and he's riding on the back of a camel uh he gets uh, he, he oh them in, in in this trajectory of, of of violence that he then goes on after the massacre he's a gun runner for a while and he gets sent to prison and he is you know brutally whipped in prison and he comes out to Sanam and this little exercise book said oh yes you know he was riding on a camel uh, in front of me and I was holding on to him. He said, don't hold on so tight. And I said, what's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? And then he lifted up his shirt and there were just welts all over it. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing and you just know, you know, that isn't a story about how they went and they ran guns together. Mm. That was human. Mm. And, I, and those stories, in India, there's a great oral tradition, which I think you have here mm. too. But, you know, we have this thing in India where things get escalated somewhat. So you have to go into this with it. We, we call it batado, which is divided by two. <laughs> so every time I heard a story, it's like saying batado, divide it by two and see if it's still interesting. And then, and then you know, the, 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 those heroic stories are worth pursuing. But the, really the dull stories are the ones that's the start of yeah. something extraordinary always. Yeah, we do too. But I must say there's some parts of our history that we have trouble addressing. And I know that's similar with um, India in, in the sense that the Civil War you know, that's that's a whole other weekend of talks oh, here. Do, and partition, partition. Yeah, yeah, and partition yeah, yeah. in Absolutely. India is the same. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah we we, um, we have parallels there too. Did you speak to, um, and I'm thinking in particular of the, the BBC documentary that came out in April um, that was produced by Satnam Sangera. Yeah. Did you speak to any of the families of Dyer or oh, O'Dwyer? Oh, you know, yes, I did. Because he, I did he had a dreadfully before. awkward encounter yes. with, uh, I don't know if it was a granddaughter yeah, of Dyer. Yeah, where so, 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 so this is the funny thing. So these things, you know... Um, so somebody gave me the telephone number for Rex Dyer's granddaughter, Caroline, and said, do you want to talk to her? And I said, I really don't, not until I finish the book, because if I like her, it's going to colour the way I write, and if I don't like her, it's going to colour the way I write. So just I won't until I hand in the final manuscript. So you didn't speak to her during the book? I didn't talk to her while I was writing, no, okay. because, you know, it, it, she wasn't the story. No, and of course I, not. And yeah. I wasn't the story, and I just didn't want to, I'm, you know, I'm... I'm I'm not serious about much in life, but I'm very, very serious about this. When you write something down and you've got one shot at getting to the truth, don't get derailed by yeah. things that you can avoid. Uh, but as soon as I handed in the um, manuscript, I rang the number, I mean, the same day. And I said, oh, uh, hi, I'm Anita Arnand. I present Any Answers on Radio 4. She goes, oh, yes, I know, I know your accent. Um, I said, oh, great. I said, I'm, I'm not ringing about that. I'm ringing because your grandfather tried to kill my grandfather. Do you want to have a cup of tea? <laughs> Uh, and to her enormous credit, um, she said, yes, no, I'd like that very much. And so we had this weird thing. I said, do you want to come to the house? And she said, yes, I'll come to the house. And I had this weird thing where I wanted to, I don't know what it was. I mean, it did something really weird to me. I couldn't tell my family because there are members of my family in India who would not speak to me again uh. if they thought I had a dyer under my roof. And uh, I had to go and sort of almost seek permission from somebody because my father's dead now. Uh, so I went to um, Lord Indigit Singh, who I don't know if you know, if you listen to Radio 4, does Thought for the Day, and he's like a big Sikh figure. And I said, do you think I can do this? And he said, do it. Why are you doing it? And I said, because I want to know the truth. I want to know. He said, then do it, because it's all about seeking the truth, so do it. So I had permission from somebody with white hair and a beard, so that was good. <laughs> <Tick>. <laughs> 
And so she came over and I just found myself behaving in a deranged manner before she got there. You know, I had to go and get the expensive pastries. <laughs> had to hoover, hoover twice. And, and when she came in, I was just so shocked because she thinks he did nothing wrong. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, the first thing that Caroline said to me is, was your grandfather a looter? Oh, my gosh. Okay. I said, do you, want, do you want some sugar in that tea? <laughs> Something else. <laughs> and, it, you, know, but, you know, we talked and we talked and we talked. Um, and at one point, I was reading to her something. Um, you got time for that? It was a little diversion. Yes, no, no. Um, so so I, I couldn't. I couldn't reach her. I couldn't, couldn't make her understand that on any level this was just not okay. And so I, I said, um, I don't understand why you're, why you're so short. And I read some of the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, about you know, people having their eyes shot out, children, all of that kind of thing. Just, uh, she just was adamant. She said, you know, he was a soldier. He was doing his duty. He was a soldier doing his duty. I said, Nuremberg, soldier doing his duty. Okay, fine. I'm not getting anywhere with this. And then I said, look, I don't understand why you're so sure when he wasn't sure. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I found this thing. I, again, I, you find these nuggets, you know, when you're researching. And it just is like the ground has dropped out from under your feet. And it's, it's in the book in, in, in detail. But it, it's an account in, in 1921 where Dyer has come out of his self-imposed purder. And he's in Oxford. Um, well, I should tell it another way. There's an Indian student called Kripalani who's at the Oxford Union. And he's having a conversation with his English friend. And they are, it's very heated. It's about imperialism, but it's about the massacre. And Kripalani, who's an Anglophile, who loves Britain, and thinks Britain's a really good thing in India, and otherwise is quite a dull writer, um, says in this account, he says, you know, that the, the massacre comes up and he gets so angry and bloodshot and heated. And, you know, they're, they're, they're really, the temperature is rising at this conversation. He says he notices this old fellow who's listening and leaning in. And, you know, they, the conversation carries on. And then this guy is sort of getting up to leave. And he comes over and he says, I, I've heard what you're talking about. Uh, can you tell me what you think of Dyer? And Kripalani goes into one, um, which is, you know, he's a monster. He should have been hanged. He, he's an unspeakable brute. And the man just looks down and says, I am that unfortunate man. And is broken and sort of walks away. And I looked up from reading this account, and bear in mind, I've read accounts now of people having their eyes shot out and, you know, children dying in front of them and all that. And I look up, and, and Caroline is in floods of tears. I said, first of all, I felt terrible. I was like, are you all right? What's the matter? And then I got really angry. I was like, why are you crying now? Mm. And you know what she said? It made total sense to me. She said, he's family. And I am loyal. And I just, you know, that made me stop mm. feeling angry because history is built on human emotions. Yeah. And that one, you know, I think most of us get it, don't we? Yeah. We may not like it, but we get it. And that makes me think about as well the slight controversy that surrounded the lack of an apology. And again, that's something we encountered in, I think it was 97. Did Tony Blair apologise for the famine, didn't he? Does it matter what value does that give um, a society X amount of years later? Um, and, I, you know, I personally think that maybe teaching 
imperial history in British schools is of more value than an apology. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, apart from um, Cameron, when he went over, which wasn't this year, obviously, it was a few years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, having a statement, which was oh, it's, unfortunately it's just, a Churchill quote. Yeah, it, which, was a, uh, yeah, it was a monstrous thing that <laughs> happened. It was kind of it. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, you know, they came close. So all the mood music coming from Westminster was that there was going to be an apology this year, and then there wasn't. And mm -hmm. it, actually, you know what? I mean, it wouldn't help my grandfather or the people who are in no. the garden, but um, it's important to a lot of people. What was really bad was there was a there was a debate about it in Westminster where Mark Field, um, who stood up, who was trade at the time, and he said, "Yes, it's it's really strange. It does somewhat get in the way with the Indians in a way that it doesn't with." Pakistan or Bangladesh <gasps> oh, wow. and you know it does get in the way with trade and I was just sitting there going oh pick the worst thing to say and say it why don't you and say so that yeah. was not good yeah I got very excited towards the end of the book when Krishna Menon surfaced oh yeah um, I don't know if you're aware of this but Krishna Menon was India's first ambassador to Ireland oh. um, and just a few months before um, Udham Singh uh, killed Michael O'Dwyer um, he would have been on Republican platforms in in London because two Irish Republicans were uh, were hung as, in the wake of the Coventry bombing. So, so there's just so many kind yeah. of parallels going on. But Menon as well, I think you'd said something about um, Menon became India's uh, second in command in the first uh, post-independence government of Jawaharlal Nehru's. Um, he is not famous for saying very little. So his lack of engagement in that court case, I found fascinating. I mean, he has the record for the longest ever yeah. speech at the UN <laughs> many yeah. years later. Yeah, I'm just yeah. curious about that. And I wonder if there's more to that, but I think it might be. Yeah, it's, it's very important. I mean, it, is, it is in the book. I sort of say that actually he was, um, uh, Udham Singh was, was sacrificed at the end. You know, mm. martyr, martyrs come in, in shapes and sizes and, mm. and he was kind of... Um, he was inconvenient. He was an inconvenient truth in 1940. Mm. But anyway, that's it's complicated. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I think they're telling us to stop now. Hi, that was a brilliant talk. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to ask, um, according to what I had read, when that was received, news of this massacre was received in Britain, the sort of political establishment tried to present Reginald Dyer as an anomalous officer and that this was un-British. So I'd like to ask, to what extent do you think um, the First World War and propaganda presenting Germans as, as brutes and genocidaires, to what extent do you think that influenced um, attitudes to what had happened in Amritsar? So you're right. Um, that it was, it was the, the British establishment, a man called Samuel Montague was the Secretary of State at the time. And he was horrified by, mm. by both O'Dwyer and Dyer. He thought they were both out of control. And so this inquiry that he's forced to hold into their actions does what it can to isolate the cancer, and the cancer becomes Dyer. Because Dyer doesn't help himself. You know, Dyer, Dyer just answers questions like a, like a simple-minded military man. You know, why did you shoot him? Because they were there. What were you trying to do? Teach him a lesson. So hang on, you went in there to, to provide a moral... Yes. And you're like, why, so why did you keep shooting? Because I thought if I didn't keep shooting, I wouldn't have done it properly. You know, he just implicates himself again and again and again and there's nothing that can be done for him so they make him the sacrificial lamb at hunter although i showed you those pictures that happened there were other people involved in strafing civilians and saying much more heinous things in germany that really kicks in not at the first world war but at the second world war so when udham singh takes his revenge the first person to jump on that story is goebbels 
who puts it out on, on, on the German bulletin saying, a great hero has punished the barbarian British. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, it's, like, it's, like, it, it's that sketch, isn't it? That, that Mitchell and Webb sketch. Oh, are we on the right side? <laughs> you know, and, and this is used as, as, as propaganda that, look, I, we told you, we are the righteous ones. Look at these people. And the whole thing of Jallianwalabagh is all kicked up again. So, yes, Second World War played a, a part, big part. I, I come from uh, Newcastle West and a few miles out the road is Temple Glanton and a man was born there in the 19th century, Michael McAuliffe, and he went to India and he became a judge, but he also became fascinated with the Sikh religion and he wrote extensively about it um, to such an extent apparently that he's revered among Sikhs in India um, who think he's British rather than Irish, but anyway, that's another question. Um, but uh, my question really was in terms of how Amritsar was dealt with, how locally it was, it was treated maybe before and, and after independence, were there informal gatherings on the anniversary? Um, it, there's, presumably there's a memorial there. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place of pilgrimage, even now. Um, I haven't been there since 2005, but I believe it's had a, make a makeover. It's had a makeover, and I don't like it. I don't okay. like the makeover. It's kind of a little bit um, a Disneyfication. I mean, I, I think I've got... I won't show you the pictures. That's too complicated for our poor AV people. But, you know, they, they, they've, they've cleaned it up a lot. They've made it greener. Um, they've made shrubs. They've cut them in topiary <gasps> oh, yes, to look so like happy. riflemen. But it's dry in India, so they're all shooting in the sky or shooting their shoes, uh, which is just, it's just not a good look. And I, you just didn't need to do that. Something, I think, quite plain and simple. But, you know, after the massacre, the massacre, it changed everything. People who thought that they were just going to fight for a little bit of loosening then said, no, get the hell out of our country. So you had Rabindranath Tagore, who returned his knighthood, and said, I don't want anything that you have touched. If you can do this to my countrymen, take it back. You had Gandhi, who just completely, no, just who months previously was recruiter-in-chief, who's just like, no, quit India, get out, get out. And you have this whole generation, not, Udham Singh is not singular in this. There's another man I talk about in the book called Bhagat Singh. Mm. They are radicalised. It's, it's, it's a very contemporary story. You know, something happens and you have a generation of radicalised young men. And that is what happens. It becomes a talisman for violence. I mean, 1919 as a turning point is really significant yep. in British imperial history. I mean, you have the outbreak of the, of the War of Independence here. You have Egypt. You have yeah. Iraq. You know, it it's really... It's the year that everything seems absolutely. to go slightly haywire. Yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. Oh. Uh, two years ago, when I was uh, uh, following the 70th anniversary of both India and Pakistan, one of the um, uh, interviews which stuck in, in my head was of these young, uh, 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 young people of Indian and Pakistan uh, heritage. And they were saying that, they were so amazed that a lot of what they are seeing on the BBC, great credit to, uh, uh, to the BBC, they never uh, knew about that. Now, the reason given for uh, that situation was that um, the, uh, the textbooks uh, don't uh, cover anything about empire, well, what they call empire history. Plus, there was a, a big resistance from the establishment to teach something called empire history. Now, seeing that we are uh, at a, a, a history festival event, I was wondering whether that um, uh, thing about 
I mean, the British were very uh, happy to talk about, you know, uh, the sun not setting on their history. But at the same time, they seem reluctant to tell the story. So has things changed that people are now saying, listen, we need to tell the history of the uh, empire or the yeah. countries where we're in? Thank you. So, so thank you. It's a really interesting question. So, so in Britain and in England, I, I mean, I, I was born and brought up. I'm an Essex girl, actually. Let me let me come out of the closet. I'm an Essex girl, uh, and I, I went to school. I, I, I did history here, and uh, we. I could tell you. I mean, I've said this before in, to, to interviews. You know, I know what a hypercore system looks like, and I can tell you about the timbered roof of a Tudor building. But sitting in the epicentre of what was once the Raj, we were never told anything about it, ever. In India, in Indian textbooks as well, for, for many, many years, there was this desire to look forward, not back. You know that we, these are two mm. countries who are becoming themselves, so we cannot keep looking back to a time when, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. 1,200 men of the ICS mm. ran hundreds of millions of life, uh, lives. You know, that, that isn't something that lent itself to the narrative of these two emerging countries. So, you know, it kind of fell a little bit by the wayside, not in, in Punjab, Udham Singh was always remembered. Udham Singh was always venerated. You know, in 1970, they demanded that his ashes were brought back home, home to India. And they received a state funeral. Indira Gandhi had to greet the casket herself as if he was a visiting dignitary. So, you know, is it changing in England? I know, not really. I mean, I, I, I host any answers, as you know, and a number of times that people ring up to talk about what will happen in post-Brexit world is that, you know, we are the country of the empire and we will do deals with the empire because, they, you know, we're with this one big happy family. You know, in, in, in India, that is not the narrative that exists. Now that people are looking back, now that there is, you know, India feels like this emerging tiger now, they do look back and they go, yeah, we, mm. we don't need anybody. I'm glad you said the B word there, not me, um, because to what extent was imperial, in your mind as a broadcaster, imperial nostalgia evoked in the lead up to the, to the vote and or I, since? You know, it's just, it's, it's a really complicated, I don't think it was imperial nostalgia. I think no. it's any number of, of, of different things. But I think that is, that is part of the narrative that this is how we become great again. Mm. Without understanding what that greatness, what price that greatness came at and yes, what it exactly. meant. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's what I feel, yeah. Hi, Hi. I'm uh, Dutch. Uh, thank you for your uh, uh, talk, very interesting. Uh, I have a question um, regarding the Indonesian Revolution, which took place right in uh, 1945, 17 August of 1945, uh, uh, Sukarno uh, declared uh, Indonesian independence. And um, the Dutch government, uh, government was very much opposed to it. And then some politicians from the from the Labour Party they, they went to um, uh, to London and uh, they tried to to uh, argue with the the, the English uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, Ernest Bevan, and Bevan said to them, "Oh, you should uh, negotiate with uh, with uh, with uh, the with the nationalists because uh, there's no no way you can you can win this." Mm. So. Could you say that, in fact, the uh, uh, the UK learned something from all the the, the failed um, um, massacres around, like for instance in Amritsar? Or, so, 
so I, I'm trying to understand. So, so did the British learn anything from massacres that had happened with other countries? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think I think at the time that these things were happening in India, the British were looking in on themselves rather a lot because looking in on themselves covered a vast area of the world. So they didn't need to look at anybody else. And also, you know, the, the people who went to govern in India had a very different mindset to the people who were actually in Westminster. So Sam, Samuel Mon, um, Montague, for example, is Secretary of State for India, uh, had a much softer line than, than the guys like Michael O'Dyer and others like him. And in response, these, these, these people who ran the Raj, who ran the empire, they thought these were weaklings in Westminster. And they, they would refer to Montague as Montague, you know, that he wasn't really English. He wasn't British enough. So he wasn't patriotic. So, you know, I don't think they needed to look anywhere outside because they had enough to look at inside, I think. But we also have to remember Kenya and Mau Mau came many years later. So I'm not sure if, if that's the case. And Montague is very interesting because he was the only person at the time to actually disagree with the Balfour Declaration, mm -hmm. which is quite controversial. But anyway... Mm -hmm. Thank you, Anita, so much. I think we're finishing up now, but can I just, everybody give Anita a great, you know, thank you for a wonderful talk today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter where we're at HistFest.